This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Politicians, business leaders, and activists from around the world are meeting this and next week in Glasgow, Scotland, to make commitments and urge others to do the same to keep the planet from overheating more than it already has. Earth's global temperature has risen 1.1 Celsius, and as the planet has warmed, fires have raged in Australia and California, heat waves and floods have killed hundreds around the world. So what can be done to keep the temperature from rising 0.4 more degrees? Christians have actively been petitioning God through prayer. Believers in Asia, Europe, and North America have gathered monthly from spring to fall to offer intercessory prayers ahead of the UN Climate Change Conference, an event organized by Lausanne slash the World Evangelical Alliance Creation Care Network, Arosha International, Youth with the Mission England, Christian Missionary Fellowship International, Tear Fund, and Young Evangelicals for Climate Change. The Young Christian Climate Network organized about 2,000 people to walk between the southwestern tip of the UK to Glasgow to raise awareness about climate change and the current practices leading to the Earth's rise in temperature. We wanted to talk to a Christian who's been praying for the planet and is currently at COP26 and see what has been happening in Glasgow this week. You're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today. I'm Daniel Silliman, uh, News Editor for Christianity Today. All right, Daniel, I would love to get your own gut check. There's obviously so many things to do a gut check on, but in this case, about the different efforts that you have been following that Christians have been up to ahead of this conference. We've been reporting on a variety of things that Christians have done, including a relay from uh, the very southwestern tip of the UK all the way to Glasgow, a kind of pilgrimage and awareness walk that was organized by a bunch of Christians, including some some evangelicals over there in the UK, to raise awareness and draw attention and also to collaborate on what churches have done and are doing on climate change. Another really interesting report for, for, for me that I worked on was on the UN's latest uh, climate it's a sort of review of the climate science, and it includes some really dire warnings about what's going to happen if we don't make dramatic changes around the world. But an interesting thing that stood out about that climate warning is that it's dedicated to an evangelical Christian named John Hooten, who did a lot of the early collaborative efforts to bring together the science and review the science on climate and atmosphere and the changes. So I would say as a, as a gut check, I'm both, you know, really encouraged by the number of Christians who've taken leading, leading roles in this moment and calling attention to the broader concerns. And also like so many people, you know, feel overwhelmed by the scale of the problem. I feel it's easy to just not believe that politics can solve these types of things. These, these, um, 
the weather is a is a hard problem to to do something about trying to watch to see what might come out of this international gathering in Scotland this week and next week. What about you, Morgan? What's your gut check? My gut check is that it's been interesting to read the coverage that I know you've been spearheading regarding how Christians are getting involved. And I, when, when I think you first published this prayer thing that was happening um, this was what in the springtime, I think, um, that it was announced. And first of all, I was like, "Whoa!" I feel like I just read that article a couple weeks ago, and I guess it's already November, and that's happening. But in addition to that, it was just interesting to see the number of evangelical organizations who had committed to regularly praying about this type of thing. I'm definitely really interested in when we have these conversations about why this movement needs Christians and you know, what it misses when it doesn't have Christians more fully and especially engaged in prayer on this. And so it was encouraging and exciting to me to see them there. And then, like we've mentioned a couple of times, they're going to have someone on the show today who is actually at the event, which, you know, I, I know these events are attended by, in this case, thousands of different people and organizations. You know, in some instances, sometimes it's, you know, some of them may end up being Christians, but I thought it was really great that there are Christians who are actively there, just even thinking of the conversations to be had with others who may not see this is a space where there aren't necessarily that many Christians who are actively involved and who are passionate about these types of things. So all of that is encouraging. The early headlines from coming out of COP26 have seemed semi-encouraging, although this issue is so large, I guess, and overwhelming in many ways so far. Maybe there are some positive things. Anyway, who is our guest today? As you said, Morgan, we're excited to have someone who's there and can give us kind of a front row seat, maybe. We have Phil Summerton today. He is full-time with YWAM, Youth with the Mission, in Scotland. So this is a local trip for him. And Phil has organized some of YWAM's prayer efforts in this last year ahead of the, the meeting And he also has a background in conservation, both marine and terrestrial conservation. So we'll hopefully get to talk some about that, too, and effects you can see right now already of climate change on land and water. Thanks for joining us, Phil. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. All right. So, Phil, I want to just back up for people who haven't been following all the climate news that we have. What is COP26 and what is it trying to accomplish? Uh, COP26 is an acronym by the UN, which technically said is Conference of Parties. So this is the Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. It's a little bit of a mouth. But essentially, it's, um, it's a, a gathering of global leaders and business leaders around the world who've signed up to look at how we can kind of how we can affect the um, global warming which is going on. Um, um, this is the 26 such meeting of this kind for, for this particular um, framework. So, yeah. so yeah, that's what this is. Um, and the, the aims of this one, there's four main aims um, for this time around. Uh, they are to secure what's called a global net zero by 2050, um, which is designed to keep the 
average warming of a globe to one one point five Celsius or less. Um, the second aim is to look at how we can adapt and protect communities' natural habitats to be able to um, achieve that. Um, the third aim is to look at how we can mobilize finance to be able to achieve those first two aims. Um, and then the fourth kind of key key aim for this conference is to see how we can work together um, across government and business um, to implement what was agreed in Paris through the Paris Climate Accord. Um, which was now six years ago. Uh, so that's, kind of, that's what this is and what this is from idea. What kind of presence do Christians have that have there? What Christian organizations have you seen or what specifically Christian events are you guys involved in? There's actually quite a range. So I'm, I'm part of something called the Christian Climate Observers Program, which is designed to help facilitate young emerging Christian leaders in the climate sphere to... Um, experience a global gathering like this um, and kind of get their heads around what this means for their, their ongoing career and development. I've seen um, Tear Thunder here. I've seen um, something called the ACT Alliance, which is a, a cross-denominational, cross-national uh, group of Christians who uh, use action to bring awareness to issues. There's various businesses and other people. I've talked to quite a few Christians who aren't here under a Christian organization, but are here um, under their business or their governmental organization, but um, still have faith and are here because they believe in what this could could be. What is your role as an observer? What are you observing? What are you actively doing uh, day to day at the conference? As the name suggests, I am. I'm looking and I'm seeing what's going on. This is the first time I've been to an event like this. One of the main roles is to is to observe, to see, to experience what's happening, and then to be able to translate that back to um, people in my church or my my group or other people. Because often what gets presented in the media is quite a big picture thing, and how I'm being able to help people grasp some of the inner workings of what's happening. Um, there's between 25,000 and 30,000 people within, within what is happening. So, and that ranges from high level government, uh, sort of conversations to businesses presenting solutions and thoughts all the way down to some civil society groups who are advocating for a particular position or trying to raise awareness of a particular issue. Um, so being able to kind of comprehend some of those things and help people outside of what the space is to understand what goes on inside. Yeah, so let's bring people into the room a bit with you. I have to imagine that there are a number of different ideas about the best ways to fight climate change at this event. But maybe you could talk about two or three of the strategies that you have seen that have stood out to you and some of the ways that they come into conflict with each other? One of the main aims of, of this conference is to, uh, is to re- sort of take the world's energy systems off of coal. Um, so there's a, there's a number of strategies looking at how, how we can reduce reliance on coal um, and bring our energy sectors onto to other things. So things like wind power, solar power, hydropower, um, 
hydrogen is something else which is being talked about. Um, nuclear is another thing. So, so transitioning the world's energy systems off of coal onto, onto other things. Um, so that's, that's one major thing. Where you get conflict within that is, um, I don't know if conflict is necessarily the best, best word to use, but um, tension between the different things is that one person is trying to push forward one idea, another group is trying to push forward a, a different idea. And so you, you kind of got to think, well, what works best in this situation or scenario? Um, and because climate is quite a complicated issue, there's no one single thing which is going to, is going to be the, the solving factor. Um, and a, another area would be looking at methane or methane production. So, um, Methane is a much more potent gas than, than carbon dioxide, but it's not talked about so much uh, because methane is often a, a leak product from the oil industry or from landfill where you have uh, food rot down and other things. So try and see, look at, well, how, how can we reduce methane? So there's a really positive thing which came out um, yesterday where a number of nations have agreed to slash their methane production, the United States included, um, or for, for methane byproducts. So a lot of those solutions are looking at changing the way that um, we do waste management or changing or looking at how, uh, the oil, where leaks happen through oil pipe. That's so, um, uh, within that, you get the, the conflict of, um, You've got on one side of the cat, one side, a lot of people saying, oh, we, we need to stop using oil altogether. Um, but then on the other side, you've got, but there's a lot of jobs and in industry, which is based on oil. So you, you have to look at, well, what's the just transition from one to another? Um, and there's, there's not necessarily full agreement in how, how we can do that. So on that in particular, are people like negotiating what those types of transitions could be? Is there a sort of, um, I don't know, conversations where people are saying, I know you, I know we're asking you to give up 10,000 jobs in this particular area of your country or something. And, and we can help by, I don't know, extending this kind of finance arrangement or supporting with other jobs. What are the types of negotiations that one might see at COP26 as we as we realize that like people will be asked to give up real things, right? This isn't just a sort of a notional agree and then we'll all go home. Like it's going to be costly for people to make any kind of real change. Yeah, you're right. It will be costly, especially as most of the world's energy systems are based on the fossil fuel industry. So to really transition to software, then you have to really understand what's the cost in terms of jobs. So, and how do we create an economy which provides jobs for, for those people who are, who are going to lose their jobs to retrain and come into new industry and new skills. There is discussion around that, but that, that I think is still in the earlier stages. So there's not necessarily consensus on, on this is what it could be, or this is what it could look like. What that would look like in, say, the Maldives would be very different to what that might look like in the United States, because the economy is different and the way that the systems are set up is different. And I know there's been a lot of, Yesterday, the focus was about financing. So there's been a lot of talk about how do we mobilize the finances which were promised through 
So six years ago, she was by richer nations to help poorer nations transition well, which those finances haven't yet been realized or, or fully released. I've seen quite a lot of people here along the lines of, well, you've, you've, you've made a lot of, especially nations from Africa or South, South, Southern America, and um, say so you've made a lot of promises over these last few years, but you've not delivered on the promises you've made. So can we see some delivery on the promises you've made rather than more promises? It feels like they're empty. Was that the type of main thing that's impeding change? What I feel like from the US, our, our discourse, it can feel like political disagreements and even people who want to raise doubts about climate change at all are like the main obstacle to, to getting anything done. But of course, at COP26, like people are on board with the need to do something. The real questions are around how and who takes responsibility and that sort of thing. As you followed along, what, what seem to be the biggest impediments to uh, making meaningful change? One of the biggest impediments would be, I think, probably confusion. With so many different ideas presented before you, then how do you pick one or, or what is the best thing to go for? There's a lot of money tied up in the energy transition. So there's, there's a lot of money to be made. There's a lot of money to be lost. People don't want to lose their livelihoods where other people want to try and make some money. So it's trying to siphon through all the different ideas and all the different voices which are vying for attention to see, well, actually, what is it that will be beneficial? What is it that will help? And how do we bring values to the forefront? Confusion is probably one of the, one of the biggest barriers to, to getting anything done. So you talked earlier about the fact that there's a, a number of Christians who are at the event right now. What type of Christians unique to the church, you might say, yeah, have you seen Christians put forward when it comes to fighting climate change? One of the things that the church is really good at is community connection and community involvement helping stories to be heard which would not necessarily be heard within the bigger room. So it's very easy for, for politicians to negotiate with each other and make some decisions, but not necessarily fully connect that to the consequences of what those decisions mean for communities or individuals. One of the great strengths that we have as, as Christians is we have the compassion to be able to hear from the least of the least and be able to bring their voice to the table. I think that's one of the things which I've, I've noticed within this place is the Christian element or Christians themselves are able to, to help bring, bring that awareness to people. Um, is there a particular part of the world that you'd like to highlight for our listeners right now? So Africa is quite a, quite a good place, but if you look at Zimbabwe particularly, they've suffered greatly over the last few years from sort of climate-induced drought more intense hurricanes and other things and their food systems are getting close to collapse. So I, I listened to, there's an individual on our, in, within our group who's from Zimbabwe and she, she was sharing her experiences of seeing mothers and children hiking for 10 hours to try and find water in, in riverway, rivers, which when they get there are dry because there, there is no rain happening in plan. Huge levels of malnutrition beginning to to creep in. So I think sometimes even myself, I being in England, being in the UK, don't necessarily fully comprehend the, the consequences of what are going on in, in nations where 
they are already struggling financially and things are already really difficult and then adding a layer on top of that of the difficulties through what is happening with climate just kind of exacerbates the problems which are already there. You mentioned confusion being an impediment. I feel like one of the other things that comes up sometimes as a, as a concern is hyperbole. There can be a sense that like every warning is the most dire warning ever. Every discussion is the like last possible moment to, to do anything. And that can, I don't know, make, make people take some of this stuff less seriously. Is that a concern for you? Is that something you see at these types of things where people are being maybe hyperbolic? Or do you think, no, this, this really is, you know, an existential crisis and, and this is dialed up to 11 is the best way to, to talk about these things? That's not necessarily the, the easiest thing to, to give a direct answer to because there's a range of understanding of what's going on. So you, within any scientific understanding, there's, you have your range of data. So you have your, it could be plus or minus this, this much from the point you've got. On some sides of things, people take the least worst scenarios and go, it's not as bad as you think it is. I mean, some people take the, the most severe scenarios and go, look, it's really, really serious. And we, we miss something which, which helps us to see the whole picture. If you, if you look at what's happening uh, outside the cop grounds of the protesting of the, through the activists and other things, there is a sense of actually we have a really deep question which we're asking. And the question is, is there hope and is there a future for us? And at the moment, we're not sure. We don't know. So, and the scientists say, potentially it could be very catastrophic. We really want you to do something. Sometimes, the, the acts maybe go a little bit far, but I think there's, there's a real genuine desire within, especially the younger generation to know that they do have something to live for and there is a hope for. Let's talk a little bit about your own work. You worked in the conservation world. How did you first get interested in this field? I probably got interested in this field when I was a little boy um, gardening alongside my grandparents. I've always had a love for growing things and seeing things flourish and and being able to share that joy with other people. I've always found a lot of joy within nature and creation around me. And I know that that's where, where I really found my faith as well was, was within, within the outdoor world. As I grew up, I could see the beauty of it, but I could also, I was beginning to see where it was suffering, where it was being destroyed. So as I was coming into my university studies, there was a lot of, sea warming which is going on which is causing lots of global bleaching of some of the coral reefs and so that piqued my interest and I wanted to look at it study it and see what difference I might be able to make thankfully that's the uh, realm of study that I went into I, I was doing um, coral reef restoration work as well as low-lying island restoration say in the in the Indian Ocean What was the change that you saw in the coral reefs? Corals are an amazing amazing thing where very symbiotic organisms. And when they get stressed through extreme temperature or other stuff, they, they release parts of what they are. So they release the, the photosynthetic elements of what they are. If the bleaching is too extreme, they're unable to recover from that. And the animal part of the coral is not able to gain enough energy and so dies. What that does is you get die off across the coral reef, which um, allows algae to grow upon it, which changes for the ecosystem. So it changes fish life and changes the way that the system works. 
and actually reduces the, so long term, that reduces the food for the local area because the, the fish life disappears or the edible fish life disappears. And also it reduces the health of the water and eventually, yeah, it's, it doesn't look very good. <laughs> And what does conservation look like in that kind of scenario? Like you, obviously climate change is the, the larger cause that you're, that you're talking about, but are there local efforts that you can, that you can make to try and preserve a specific coral reef? So it's a combination of extreme temperature and also often runoff from, from local land. So helping agriculture to change their practice bits, so you get less runoff, less siltation within water helps because then there's less stress from that point of view. And so the car was able to cope a bit better with the temperature stress. The other thing which is really encouraging for me to see is local efforts to what are called reseed for corals. So you can, you can regrow corals in a controlled environment and then kind of plant them like you would plants on lap. You can attach them to the base and then they'll regrow. The other stress is temperature rise. So then that's where it comes into a big picture of well, we need to do something about the climate, but, but there, there are ways of helping coral reefs to recover and restore themselves, especially after a big bleaching event. Because the bleaching events won't happen every single year, although they, they are becoming more frequent. You can help to corals to recover from those. This episode is brought to you by Preaching Today. Are you tired of chasing down quality sermon illustrations? Need fresh ideas for helping your message connect? Each week, Preaching Today adds fresh content to our database of over 14,000 editor-screened illustrations. Quickly find the right story that will bring your message to life and help your people move closer to God. Get started today at preachingtoday.com. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes, so if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. You mentioned, um, like, growing up in the garden with your grandparents and and experiencing your faith in that space. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What kind of church were you involved in? How did you work with YWAM connect with your experience of, yeah, being a gardener and a nature lover with your grandparents? So I grew up in, in an Anglican church, in the Church of England. That was my original 
church upbringing background, but there's just something about, you know, if you, if you go all the way back to Genesis, God beautifully created everything which is around us. It, it wasn't just people, but he took time to create the animals. He took time to create the land, sea, stars, moon, everything that we see. And so there's something within the creation of nature and the creation of the solar system and everything else which reflects something of the generosity of God, the beauty of him and the awe of him. If you, if you look up at the night sky in a place where you don't have much light pollution, just the, the immensity of what you can see just makes you feel very small. Also, there's an awe into you of, of who, who created it. As I grew older, I work, working in, in the tropics, being underwater and seeing the beauty of the creation underwater, it just speaks so much of who God is. I moved from that kind of work into YOM, which is a, a missions organization, which looks to share, share the understanding and knowledge of God with, with anyone who we meet and wanting other people to know that there is a God and experience that he made all of this is it ties those two kind of passions together. I, I've long wondered for people who work either trying to fight climate change or do conservation work or work in the environment more broadly, how they wrestle with their faith when they're in a place where there's a lot of just hard news that they have to confront and yeah, hard truths about the trajectory that the world is on with either the loss of biodiversity or planet changing at a rate that seems unsustainable with regards to the temperature. Did you have moments where you felt your faith challenged because of feeling discouraged overall by what was happening to the planet? Yeah, I think I have. You look at the dates sometimes, you look at the trajectory and you go, it feels hopeless. But then there's another part of me which goes, you know, but God is the God who brings hope into any situation which we can, which we experience. But he also knows the hardship of situations. You, know, you think about Calvary. He knows what it means to suffer and he, he knows what it means to experience difficulty. He never gave up on himself. <laughs> he didn't give up on, on that. Yeah, I, I've had moments where I've gone, really? <laughs> How is there any hope left in front of me? Being confronted by God again and what? And said, well, actually, no, there is hope. And I've seen hope happen. I've seen restoration happen. I know that there can be, that things can change, especially when we engage with God. When I look around at the things which are in front of me and the things that I've seen, when we engage with God, it brings a lot of hope. So there's a really great, great story for me. There's a, a couple who were in the States. They ran a paint stripping business, stripping doors, and they realized that what they were engaged with was actually causing a lot of harm to their workers um, because the chemicals are really, really potent. And they took some time to pray about it and go, God, do we give up this business or what do we do? God gave them a dream of a chemical formula. And when they synthesized the chemical, it stripped the paint as well as the strip of they had before, but it didn't do the harm that it did to, to their workers and the environment. So I know that when we engage with God and when we include him in the process, there is hope. It's interesting talking about a, a, a couple making a, a specific business decision. I feel like one of the questions we always have to wrestle with when we talk about these global issue of climate change is how to apportion the responsibility or the, the burden. How do you think about it? How much of the response to climate change needs to be individuals making better choices, how much of it needs to be 
businesses making commitments and how much should be um, governments and regulation? How do you understand the uh, relationship between those responsibilities? You can't have just one of them. There has to be an aspect of individual understanding and choice to I pick this product or this product. And that can feel like really overwhelming. Oh my goodness, I have to change my whole life immediately. What I often say to people is, I just, just think about one thing and pick one thing and then make that choice. And then you can pick something else. Businesses have a, definitely have a obligation because, because they make a lot of money off, off things, but also they sell all the products. So they, they, I think there's a, an obligation in business to think through how are we responding to this? And businesses often interplay off government. So government make legislation and business do something or business is doing something. So government will make ways for that to happen better. So there has to be a good conversation between business and government. A lot of people think about this maybe as a, as an environmental issue. But actually it's, I think it's more than an environmental issue. I think it's more of a, sort of a, a moral, moral issue. And when thinking about one thing in reporting on some of these stories and, and talking to some CT readers, my sense is that you know, common response for, for some American evangelicals is to think, yeah, I'm on board. I'm concerned about this thing. I'm, I'm happy to read about Christians at COP26 being active, but I don't necessarily know what I should do. It seems, yeah, like an insurmountable task. When you talk to people like that in, in your circumstances, where do you recommend that they start? What's the one thing that a faithful church member can maybe take up? If, I, if I'm on board, I understand there's something going on. Um, what is it I can do? Well, I can talk to someone else. I can have a conversation. I can learn. One of the things that I want to do is I want to be a learner for as many years as there are ahead of me. I don't want to ever think that I, I know everything. Because I know I don't. I think it's, it's going from, okay, there's something going on and, okay, I understand that, but what do I do? Have some conversations, talk to each other about it, have a think through, well, what can we do in our church? There's, there are some great resources around for, to kind of help churches think through energy, recycling, composting, growing things, et cetera, et cetera. Having got, say, because that way you know that you're not alone and you know that other people you can bounce ideas off other people too. So one thing that I found interesting about this work is that it involves the entire world. And that is something that when I'm in many evangelical spaces, many of them are global spaces where, you know, people from the West are in conversation with folks from the global South. Do you see at all the West, I don't know if the right word is apathy, but moving slowly on these issues having missional repercussions with how seriously, you know, Christians in the global South might take the faith of Christians in the West or causing tensions in the future around these issues? With, with my role within, within YWAM, uh, one of the things that I know we're talking about across the mission is how will this affect the way that mission happens? I do think that talking to friends here in the, in the global South as well, that there's a, a desire to see more action happen. There's a lot of talk within, within the Western world and there is some action happening, but I think we need, the Western world as a whole just needs to take another step. And I know that often these things can start really slowly, so pick up momentum as they go. One of the things which I've seen happening here 
within this conference is stronger commitments, desire for more, to do more, promises to do more. So I think we're definitely going in the right direction and being in this space does feel very hopeful from both perspectives. But I think then there needs to be a, we kind of need to not just have two weeks and then go back to business as it was, but have these two weeks and then take a step into what has been promised. I'm glad to see that you brought up the word hope. How does that actually look like when it's in a space like COP26? Would you say that people feel nervous about feeling hopeful about these things? They feel burned out, like there's been other times where stuff has not worked out? Or are people open to believing that there might be a way to cool the changing temperature of the planet? I've had interesting conversations with people kind of on a range of spectrum with that. But I think overall, there, there is a sense of hope. I mean, you've had a, agreements already on reversing deforestation. You've had agreements on releasing more finances. You've had agreements on moving away from coal in the next 10 years. Some of these things are, are things which have been theoretical and potentials, but are now being signed, signed by many different countries and organizations. In that respect, there, there is already a sense of, yeah, there are things which are being achieved and there are things which feel like we are taking a step. We are starting to move in that direction. So from that point of view, there is a, yes, major hope, but definitely a tentative, oh, this is feeling, this is feeling like there's something happening. Phil, were you part of this prayer movement that we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast? Yes. Yeah, I have been, yeah. What was the reaction to people who are outside the church about that movement? Was it one of gratefulness that these Christian organizations were getting involved or did people you know, make suggestions that it was just kind of a, not, there was not enough action. I, I know that in the U.S. we've had some issues in recent years after mass shootings, for instance, with politicians responding with saying they're going to pray for something. And there's definitely emerged a really, really, really deep cynicism towards both, I would say, some Christians who feel like Prayer is something that politicians hide behind and say that they're doing without actually doing anything to address the problem. But yeah, there's just this, there's just a sense that prayer is not something that's, you know, actually serious when people are saying that. So what type of, what, you know, what are the range of reactions that you, that you got to this initiative? Yes, a big range of reactions. There's, is it interesting, especially engaging with some of the activists, because a lot of them would say that there's a paper released back in the, 60s or 70s, which basically one of its points was blaming the church for where we're going for some of the environmental crises. A lot of them seeing people praying, but also seeing people take action out of some of that as well. Okay, okay, yeah, you guys, you guys are serious about this. And it's opened up conversations across the board for we're here because we believe that God cares about us. Um, we want to do something, but we don't know where to start exactly so we can start by praying and then we're going to take a step from that and advocate for something there's a almost a welcoming of the thankfulness for for a design within within the christian world to take this seriously in a way which which our faith expresses through prayer why would you say that the climate change movement needs christians we have a perspective on the world which is maybe a little bit different I, I come back to the sense of hope. You know, we've talked about hope quite a lot, but a Christian has a sense of more than just themselves and solutions can come from more than just themselves. So I think 
I think there's an important place for that to be be a part of the discussion. Otherwise, it, it relies on on mankind itself to to fix the problem. The other thing is that we not just with this, but with that for our life, we we seek to recognize the selfish selfishness of the human heart and greed and other things and, and address those things. So so we can help others to recognize where greed is maybe playing a role in selfishness or other things and go, well, okay, how do we lay some of that down and step beyond those things and, and see some of change? So COP26 continues through the, through the end of next week. What are you praying for while you're there? What are you praying for? I'm praying that we, we get a, a good outcome or a godly outcome. I, what that exactly means, I don't know. But I think I really believe that God is really interested in what this conference is about and about the decisions which come out of it because he, he's interested in, in his creation, in the human race, in how we love one another and how we move forward with one another. So he's not disinterested in, in what is going on. And he wants to be a part of it. My prayer for this time is that, that we, we're able to come together and we're able to come out of this with a new sense of this is how we're moving forward globally, how we're going to love one another really well from one nation to another, um, how we're going to support one another through the difficult times which are to come. Are there any other specific outcomes that you might encourage um, our listeners to pray for or and or, you know, I thought the story that you told a couple minutes ago about how climate change is currently playing out in Zimbabwe was just constructive for our listeners to hear. Are you aware of any other situations um, where people are facing pretty dire climate circumstances that could also use the prayers of our listeners? The Maldives is quite a good example. They've created a sovereign fund within their nation based off the income from tourism to, and they're looking at the moment where they might purchase a homeland because if the sea level rises enough, a lot of the Maldives would disappear. So low-lying Pacific islands in homes in the Indian Ocean and places like that. When the tsunami, the really big Christmas Day tsunami happened, a lot of the islands of Maldives, the water just kind of ran straight over the top. It didn't kind of hit them and proceed because they're maybe a meter above sea level. Praying for practical solutions for those who are in the most vulnerable situations um, to be worked out through these next two weeks would be, would be a good thing to be praying for. Well, thank you very much for your time, Phil. It was great to hear from someone who is currently at COP26. For people who have thoughts, discussion, feedback, pushback, whatever, send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. And know that we always appreciate hearing what you have to say. Please be in touch with us there. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, and it's where we invite everyone to share something that has recently brought them joy. Daniel? I, for the month of October, was asked to teach third to fifth grade Sunday school at my church, which I had never done before. I don't have kids of my own, so I'm often not asked to volunteer in that space. But someone found out that I like kids, and so I got invited there was some trepidation. I didn't feel super confident going into a room full of third, fourth, and fifth graders. But man, talking about the Bible with kids was kind of great. And I would recommend it to our listeners. 
The very first class, our text was whether or not a camel can go through the eye of a needle and how all things are possible with God. And I asked the students to draw a camel going through an eye of a needle. And they all immediately started drawing needles going into camels and <laughs> lots of blood and farts and other third, third and fourth grade things. But then this last week, as I finished up my one month term, we were talking about the New Jerusalem. Fourth grade girl drew a picture of the water of life in the new heaven and the new earth being without price and had um, Satan sneaking in to try and charge a thousand dollars for water. And God, who was drawn as a big cloud, saying, No, I don't know. I've been thinking about that, that picture she drew all week and the perspective that gave me on that verse which I don't think I'd ever noticed the money element of the water of life before. Yeah, that's brought me a lot of joy and it can bring you joy too if you want to go volunteer for Sunday school. What, what like passages of scripture are you going through? That was quite the range just there. It was the range. <laughs> we follow the liturgy, but for All Saints Day, Revelation came in and the, the saints and the new heaven and the new earth was, was the text for that Sunday. Otherwise, we were going through Mark. Okay, gotcha. It's a month. you got lots of choices. Pull from all of scripture. This will not be the last time you teach Sunday school, it sounds like. It doesn't, yeah, it does sound like. I will get asked back. (laughs) Whether you like it or not. (laughs) Volunteers, they always need volunteers. All right, Daniel, where can people find you on Twitter? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Daniel Silliman. And of course, my news reporting and the news I edit is at ChristianToday.com. Bill, do you want to go? In this last week here, which has really brought me joy, is watching my my two kids play with each other. I've got a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And the thing which brought me loads of joy this week is to watch them play together really well and see how they, because they don't always play together well, but my younger one's beginning to get a concept of what it means to play with rather than what it means just to break the things which my, my older one's making watching them sit down together and actually build things together and create something together gave me a lot of joy. What do they like to do together? Well, they were building a marble run this time. Normally they like running around outside, but it was raining. So when it's raining, we tend not to play so well together. (laughs) Ah, makes everyone. Phil, where can people find out more about you or your work? Is there a place where they can follow you? Well, I'm on Facebook. That's about it, really. (laughs) Find me on Facebook, Philip Somerton. And what's the um, YWAM website? YWAMCOP26.org. All right. So yesterday I took my first hula lesson class, which was great because everyone in the class knew what they were doing and I had no idea what I was doing. The instructor was like, just try to follow along, which I think there's, I don't know, moves. That's that the I can best do. kind of teaching. That's, that's really that most helpful instruction. Right. You know how you don't know what's happening? Do what they're doing. Right. And I think I'm not not terrible at imitating, but it's hard when you just like don't actually know the steps that you're doing. So anyway, though, it was nice. There's live music. The teachers, so teacher in Hawaiian is Kumu. So the Kumu actually plays live music, which is nice. And the women in the class are really friendly. And I also kind of learned a little bit more about how they teach hulas, which is cool. He gave me a piece of paper and he was like, here you write the Hawaiian for the word there. Underneath, you write the English, and then he has everyone kind of translate underneath what that means to them as far as like how they move their hands and how they move their feet. Because his whole goal is to give people 
a number of hulas um, for them to be able to perform at other times in their life, even if they don't remember them. And then every two years, according to him, he collects everyone's notebook. So he actually, there's a notebook check coming up in a couple weeks. And he was like, don't worry, you don't have to do it. But two years from now, you have to have it <laughs> together. That was cool just to learn more about how these types of things get passed down and taught to people. And hopefully over the course of the next couple months, I begin to like learn vocabulary and steps and so forth. So my also my Kumo is very friendly and kind. And so were the other students, even though they were all much more experienced than me for obvious reasons. All right. People can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Linder. The music is by Sweeps. And the transcript is done by Faith and Dovu. Send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitoday.com. And we do want to hear from you. We will see you all next week. Bye. This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast, an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time.